for your grace, and we thank you for meeting us. We thank you that your rule and your reign is coming, and it's happening now to a certain extent, but it will come in its fullness, and the things that are wrong will be made right, and we look forward to that day when you fulfill your promises to your people and when you renew the earth. And so as we look at the millennial kingdom and look at it, uh, just the, the data that's there for it, I just pray that the, you give us all good thinking caps and good discussion, good engagement, and uh, we just praise you and thank you for your grace. And praise you that these things can be discussed and we don't have to divide over them, and that we can unify on you and the gospel. We just thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, again, we're in Revelation 21 through 10. It's the millennial kingdom. I'm just going to read the passage tonight just to kind of refresh our memory. Last week we went, not last week, last time we went over Revelation 21 through 10. We asked ourselves a bunch of observational questions. So kind of just kind of, if you can keep those somewhat in your mind, um, definitely the t passage just as a very straightforward reading represents it as a literal thousand years that Christ will reign um, on the earth, uh, shared with both martyred saints uh, from the tribulation period and saints from all time. Um, in Israel, in that land, and the nations will come. And we looked at some Old Testament passage that promises Israel, the, the land in perpetuity, uh, forever. And so, uh, and the concepts there. And so this week, uh, we are going to take a look at Second Temporal, temporal Literature, Millennial Kingdom concepts. Uh, there's not a lot, but there is some. And we're going to entertain some of those. And then the, the, the going to take the bulk of our time is looking at early church fathers, first, second, and just into the third century of early church fathers uh, and what they thought about the text. Um, a lot of times you'll hear from people that the early church was not literal thousand years, like they were all millennial. I, I think once we go through this information, there are all millennial early church fathers. I don't want to paint a picture that there are none, but they're later than the earlier ones. Um, but the majority of early church fathers are millennialists. Now, whether they're pre-millennialists or post-millennialists will be a discussion for, la for later on. So pre means Christ comes before the millennial kingdom. Post means Christ comes after the millennial kingdom. Okay, so that's pre or post. Okay, and we'll discuss that. We're gonna have a little discussion on these three places but not tonight, because I'm trying to give you information. Does that make sense? And so if you need more information or if something I'm reading, there's a lot of reading tonight, and I, we're not going to get through it all, but there's a lot of information. So if something doesn't make sense, feel free to stop me, and I'm going to be asking you questions, but we're going to be doing a bulk of, of reading uh, together. I mean, I don't want you to read out loud, but read along with me as I read it out loud to you. All right, any questions so far? Any questions about the Millennial Kingdom or this? Yeah, perfect. I love it. Yeah, okay, so I'm going to save that, ha that answer at length for, for another time. 
Um, but our post-millennialist basic view is the church ushers in the age of a thousand years, and then when that the church ushers in that age of a thousand years, and at the end, because they've cr- made the earth ready for Christ to return, then he returns. So that's like the, the one-liner for post-millennialism. It's probably not the best liner, in a sense, because it's with my bias, which is not post-millennial. I put post-millennial, in my opinion, puts too much on the church. Okay, the church is responsible for basically ruling the world. Post-millennial was really popular when church and state were intertwined, right? So in Catholicism, it's pretty popular. Does that make sense? Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay, let's start with Revelation uh, 20, verse 1. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil, and it bound him for a... You say it out loud for me. Let's, 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 let's get it in our minds, and that engages the kids as well. So for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and the pit is the abyss, right? And shut it and sealed it over him so that he may not disappear until the thousand years were ended, right? After that, he must be released for a little while, okay? And then I saw the throne seated on them were those who, whom the authority to judge was committed. And I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years has are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, meaning the whole earth. That's what it means. The earth doesn't have corners. It's a globe, but it's an expression to talk about the whole earth. Gog and Magog. To gather them for battle, their number will be like the sand of the sea. And they marched over the broad plain of earth and surrounded the camp of the saints, the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who, was, who had deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. Justice has come. Right? So how long is the reign? a thousand years and uh, definitely the saints that uh, come through the tribulation are reigning and I think that if we look at a bigger context we'd say that all Christians are reigning with Christ in that thousand year reign Um, the purpose of the thousand year reign is to fulfill the promises made to Israel in perpetuity for the land okay on the earth if you have a new heaven and new earth that's not the same place right so um, so it's to, to fulfill that uh, for them. Um, so the disputed questions relative to Revelation 21 through 10 are whether the text is to be taken, A, literally, which is where I t- typically sit, millennialism, or B, figuratively, millennialism, meaning, yeah, meaning no millennial, right, or figurative millennial, not a literal thousand years. 
and assuming a millennial interpretation whether the second coming of the Lord is preceded, premillennialism, or follows, postmillennialism, the time of a chelastic victory. I love it when they do this to us, but chelastic is the Greek word for a thousand years, so, um, um, so chelastic victory. So, um, yeah, so this is the three, and we're going to be dealing with these. Uh, today, we're looking at the concept of the millennium, a thousand years, in Second Timber literature, and then in the early church fathers up to 300 A.D. Um, next week, we'll probably um, be looking more at, like, our millennialism and what early church fathers held that view. Okay, any questions uh, so far or thoughts? You want to check to see if Joyce is okay? What'd you do with my phone, kitty? Doggy? I had my phone, but I don't know what I did with it. Well, I got the phone right here. The dog is on it. She just usually comes, and so she's not here. I'll just check in with her. secret over there you don't have to whisper we're not talking about anything particular I was just checking in on you because you won a Bible study and I just want to make sure you're okay. You forgot. Well, you're okay. I'm glad you're okay. If you want to come, we're all here and we'll, we'd love to. Okay. All right. You got busy doing something else. I understand. It's one of your Wednesday Saturdays. I totally get it. No, you don't have to apologize. I just wanted to make sure you were okay because you're so faithful at being here. So. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Don't. Yeah. No, it's okay. You don't have to apologize. So if you want to come, you can. If you want to just stay home, I understand. Okay. Uh, it's 15 after, so it's 6.45, or si almost 6.50, so, but we, yeah, well, about 6.35, it didn't start right on time tonight, so, so if you want to come, you won't have missed that much, okay, no rush, and no, no pressure, just wanted to make sure you were okay. Yeah, yeah, Mike is here, Cindy's here, the Cornforce are here, B 
built here. Yeah. It's okay. Well, you know, we'll still be talking. We got a lot to go over tonight. So. Okay. Uh, yep. Bye bye. It's all right. Bye bye. Well, I'm glad she's okay. Okay, so we're going to take a look at the idea in the Second Temple writings. And tonight, all the stuff except for the reference I just read is in your paper. So, um, whether or not eyesight or, I mean, it's there. So if you don't, like, follow, you can always go back and read it later. So, so in Enoch, and we've referenced Enoch for quite a bit uh, for Revelation. Uh, Enoch is a Second Temple period uh, pseudepigrapha book, meaning it has a name attributed to it in honor of a patriarch, Enoch. And... Um, and so he uh, he's talking to his children in this one, and his, he's giving a, a view of the plan for the world, and he gives it in weeks. Um, and, uh, and so each week uh, to Enoch is a thousand years, okay? So as we read through that, you can keep that in mind. Then he, Enoch, spoke to all of the children of righteousness and said, Hear all you children of Enoch, the talk of your father, and listen to my voice in uprightness. For I exhort you, my beloved, and say to you, Love uprightness and it alone. Do not draw near, up, do not draw near up uprightness with an ambivalent attitude, and neither associate with hypocrites. But walk in righteousness, my children, and it shall lead you in good paths, and righteousness shall be your friend. Verse 5. For I know the state of violence will intensify upon the earth. A great plague shall be executed upon the earth. All forms of oppression will be carried out and everything shall be uprooted and every arrow shall fly fast. Oppression shall reoccur once more and be carried out upon the earth. Every form of oppression, injustice, and iniquity shall infect the world twofold. When sin, oppression, blasphemy, and injustice increase, crime, iniquity, and uncleanliness shall be committed and increase likewise. Then a great plague shall take place from heaven upon all these. The Holy Lord shall emerge with wrath and plague in order that he may execute judgment on the earth. What's that sound like? That right there. The tribulation, yeah. In those days, injustice shall be cut off from its sources Cut off its sources, uh, sources of succulent fountain, and from its roots, likewise, oppression together with deceit, they shall be destroyed from under the heavens. All that which is common with the heathen shall be surrendered, the towers shall be inflamed with fire and thrown into judgment of fire, and perish in wrath and in the force of eternal judgment. Then, righteous, then the righteous one shall arise from his sleep, and the wise one shall arise. And he shall be given unto them, the people. And through him the roots of oppression shall be cut off. Sinners shall be destroyed by the sword. And they shall be cut off together with blasphemers in every place. And those who design oppression and commit blasphemy shall perish by the knife. Then after this shall occur the second eighth week, a week of righteousness. A sword shall be given to it in order that judgment shall be executed in righteousness on the oppressor. And sinners shall be delivered into the hands of the righteous. At its completion, they shall acquire great things through their righteousness. A house shall be built for the great king 
in glory forevermore. Then after that, in the ninth week, the righteous judgment shall be revealed to the whole world. All the deeds of the sinners shall depart from the whole earth and be written off for eternal destruction. And all the people shall direct their sight to the paths of righteousness. So what's that sound like? The great white throne judgment. Yeah. Then after that, on the, the tenth week, in the seventh part, there shall be an eternal judgment. And it shall be executed by the, by the angels of the eternal heavens, the great judgment, which emanates from all from all the angels, the first heaven shall depart and pass away, a new heaven shall appear, and all the powers of heaven shall shine forever sevenfold. Then after that there shall be many weeks without number forever. It shall be a time of goodness and righteousness, and sin shall no more be heard of forever. What's that sound like? The eternal state, right? Right? And so he puts two judgments in there, right, where we have the great white throne judgment, where everybody's kind of being judged, clumped together. He takes human judgments as one, and then he takes the angels' judgments as a second. Um, but still, you have, so you have the seventh week, which is all that tribulation, and then you have the eighth, uh, the eighth week, which is a, thou it's a, a time of righteousness, right? So this is that concept that's uh, in Enoch. He carries through this week throughout his whole book, this concept. I just, this was the one that talks fairly clearly about it. There's other places, and just for the sake of time, I didn't want to read every occurrence. Um, and then uh, there's a couple other uh, references to, uh, in second address, to uh, the reign of Christ, but it doesn't actually mention a time period. So I, I, I left that one out. And then um, in second uh, Baruch, it's written, in my opinion, too late to be relevant to John, so I don't think it's pertinent. So if, ev if you ever see it, that's that's why it's there, because uh, it is a pseudopyphica, but it's like really uh, towards the end of the B.C. area, so it's not that contributive to, to John and his writing, in my opinion. So in e Enoch's 10-week timeline, we see the eighth week as a time period of righteous before the judgment, right, in the ninth week which is verses 12 and 13. And this could, and I think it does, uh, correlate to the millennial kingdom. I think this is part of where, I mean, God's obviously revealing this stuff to John, but John's also pulling out of the Old Testament. And we've already discussed on how the, the first and second Enoch, the pseudepigrapha, was part of the Bible uh, that John is using when he's writing um, because he's using the Septuagint when he's writing Revelation. That's the manuscript, at least, that he's familiar with, because that's what he quotes from the most. Any questions so far? Yeah. No. So Enoch is what the Catholics would consider deuterocanonical, meaning it's secondary. Um, it's not authoritative. I would say it's, uh, it's beneficial. We re I'm looking at Enoch. Uh, and having you guys look at Enoch for context of what uh, what the writer is doing and why he's writing and where these concepts come. Like, I, I just want you to know that John isn't just pulling a thousand years out of a hat. Does that make sense? Yeah. And But it's not, like, it gives us a, 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 a window 
uh, into the culture and the way they thought. And it's actually quite foreign to the way we think, right? So it helps us just be introduced to that. Uh, John uses, like, he gives, remember, he has definitely in the bulls, uh, we went over this th three, two or three sessions ago, the, the responsibilities of angels. A lot of the responsibilities of angels that John gives angels in Revelation, like the angel in charge of water, the angel in charge of fire, the angel in charge of air, that comes right out of Enoch. No, what, so, that, so it's a pseudepigrapha, meaning they named the book to honor that guy. But that guy didn't write the book. Does that make sense? Okay. Yeah, I think Enoch's in the Catholic in the is in the Catholic Bible. Yeah. I don't. Yeah, I just have it in my Bible study program. So, um, yeah. And if you read First and Second Enoch, or apocalyptic, so they have. It's about as it, it feels as foreign as reading Revelation. A lot of imagery. Okay. All right. Any other thoughts or questions? John's very familiar with this text. Yeah. I because I see it all over. In, I mean, he's ref, he's he's alluding to it several times in Revelation. That's like all his a, his angelology in Revelation. Not all of it, but a majority of it comes from the ideas that are put forth in Enoch. And whether they were oral tradition before they were written down in Enoch is an argument that people would, would make, right? But it's in that second temple period where a lot of that stuff is developed, right? Hi, Joyce. So let's look at the millennial kingdom in the early church fathers period. And what I'm going to do is... Um, I'm going to give you a little biography of the guy, and then we're going to look at what he said. And some of it they said a lot. Some of them they didn't say so much. So um, feel free. I'm going to try to go slow. I mean, not too fast, but I'm going to try to move through it so we can cover some ground. But if you have a question or a thought, please feel free to ask me, okay? Stop me and ask me because this I want to be engaging and learning, okay? So the first guy... Uh, Holy Church Father who spoke of the Millennial Kingdom is Papias, who had contact with uh, those who had contact with Jesus. So he's like a second peel witness, right? So he, he learned, he discipled those. Um, and it tradition says he was a disciple of John who wrote Revelation, okay? Uh, and this is recorded by you, uh, Eusebius, uh, however you want to say his name. I'm not good at names, so I'm going to butcher these names, and I'm just apologizing for all those people who can pronounce names well. Uh, but Eubius, uh, or Eusebius, I don't know, Eusebius maybe? Does that sound right? Eusebius? Uh, he's a church historian, and now he writes in like the third or fourth, probably the th like the end of the third century, and uh, Eusebius is an amillennialist. So he is taking a figurative interpretation of the millennial kingdom. Now, Eusebius in his histories, uh, 339.5 through 13, he writes this. It is here worth nothing that he twice counts the name of John, and reckons the first John with Peter and James and Matthew and the other apostles, clearly meaning the evangelists, 
But by changing his statement, places the second with the others outside the number of the apostles, putting Asturian before him and clearly calling him a presbyter. A presbyter is a pastor or an elder. Okay? This confirms the truth of the story of those who have said that there were two of the same name in Asia and that there are two tombs at Ephesus, both still called John. This calls for attention, for it is probable, probable that the second, unless anyone prefers the former, saw the revelation which passes under the name of John, speaking of the, the book of Revelation. The, the Papias, whom we are now treating, confesses that he had received the words, from, words of the apostles from their followers, but says that he had actually heard Ariston and the presbyter John, he often quotes them by name and gives their traditions in his writings. Let this suffice to good purpose. But it is worthwhile to add that the words of Papias are already given other sayings of his in which he tells certain marvels and details which apparently reached him by tradition. It has already been mentioned that Philip, the apostle, lived at Herlopolis with his daughters. But it must now be shown that Papias was with them and received a wonderful story from the daughters of Philip. For he relates the resurrection of a corpse in his time and another place, another miracle connected with justice, named Barbarus. For he drank poison, but by the Lord's grace suffered no harm. Of this justice, the Acts re relates the sacred apostles sent him up and prayed over him together with Matthias after the ascension of the Lord for the choice of one to fill their number in the place of the traitor Judas. And they sent forth two, Joseph called Barabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, the same writer abduct uh, abductees of the other accounts as though they came to him from an unwritten tradition, and some strange parables and teaching of the Savior. Are you, are you tracking? So it's just his account there. And so, so, there's two Johns, and he's deliberating who Papias was affiliated with, right? Um, the two Johns in his history. If we went back, I don't have time tonight, but he'll talk about the other John. No, 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 the same John wrote all the books, yeah. Um, and some other mythical accounts. Among them, he, Papias says that there will be a millennium after the resurrection of the dead, when the kingdom of Christ will be set up in this material form on this earth. I suppose he got these notions by a perverse reading of the, now this is where his uh, millennialism is coming in, right? I suppose he got this notion by a perverse reading of the, apostoli op op the apostolic accounts, not realizing they had spoken mystically and symbolically. Okay? <laughs> Eusebius is not a millennialist, no. For he was of a very, a man, and so he belittles uh, Papias a little bit here. He, for he was a man of very little intelligence, as clear from his books. Now, none of his books actually exist again, but several other early church fathers reference him, okay? But he is responsible for the fact that so many Christian writers after him held the same opinion, relying on his antiquity, for instance, Irenaeus and whoever else appears to have held these same views. Okay. Yeah, he does. Now, of course, you know, oftentimes when we're engaging in the bait, right, or we're disagreeing with somebody, it's hard to be gracious, isn't it? 
right? And so this guy, Eusebius, uh, <laughs> is written down in the, the history books of not very, very, very gracious to Papias, the second, who's a like a second century, right? Now he's just recording this, and he doesn't know Papias, right? So this is remember, uh, Papias, Papias is living very early on, like uh, 90s to like 130 A.D. That's like his life, you know, his his time period. And Eusebius is this, he's writing this like 200 years later, okay? So he's, he's doing research and collecting this and writing this down. And uh, he's, it's at shortly after actually that Constantine comes into power, he's writing a history of the church, okay? That's what, that's what this, and I, I'm so grateful for Eusebius uh, because if he had not written this down, then um, we wouldn't have this source to reference Papias, okay? Now, there are other writers like Arrhenius, Arrhenius, who references Papias, or who he mentions here. And Arrhenius is uh, a big apologetist, and he will talk about him tonight. Uh, if you, I mean, these books, that bottom part is the book. So if you wanted to get the book, um, all those quotation citations are in your papers. So you could always just look those up if you want to get them. A um, little plug for Lagos, they're going to be a lot cheaper there than actually buying the physical volume. Not that I'm encouraging you to do so. It's just whatever you want to do. The second early church father is Arrhenius, who is one of the foremost early church uh, Christian theologians. He defended orthodoxy of Christian doctrine. Arrhenius received his early tr Christian training from Polycarp, okay, um, and uh, who, who was a bishop of and was a bishop of Smyrna in Western Asia Minor, and Polycarp had association with John as well. So uh, we're getting some pretty tight circles here. Uh, Polycarp had been a disciple of the Apostle John. Arrhenius may have served under Polycarp for several years before being sent to Gaul or modern-day France as a missionary. Around 178 A.D., Arrhenius became bishop of the Lions in Gaul. There he continued to serve effectively during the last quarter of the second century, and he held a millennial reign of Christ. In his book, Arrhenius Against Heresies, in book 5, chapter 32, uh, the very first part, point 1, and then in chapter 33, he writes this. Inasmuch, therefore, as the opinions of certain orthodox persons are derived from heretical discourses, they are both ignorant of God's dispensation and of the mystery of the resurrection of the just and of the the earthly kingdom, which the which is the commencement of incorruption, by means of which kingdom, by which kingdom those who shall be worthy are accustomed gradually to partake of the divine nature, and then there's some Latin in there. And it is necessary to tell them respecting those things that it behooves the righteous first to receive the promise of inheritance which God promised to the fathers, and to reign in it when they rise again to behold God in this creation which is renovated and that the judgment should take place afterward. Okay? So he's saying earthly kingdom, right? Meaning not the eternal state, but the earthly kingdom. Okay? And he's making a priority that that is false. And then in chapter 15, he, um, he goes through and he, he says the predicted blessings, speaking of the millennial kingdom, of what God had promised Abraham, uh, belongs unquestionably to the times of the kingdom, meaning the millennial kingdom, when the righteous shall build 
shall bear rule upon the rising from the dead, when also the creation, having been renovated and set free, shall fructify. Those are not not a word for you. Uh, be fruitful with an abundance of all kinds of food from the dew of heaven, from the fertility of the earth, and the elders who saw John, the disciple of the Lord, related that they had heard from him how the Lord used to teach in regard to these things, and say, the days will come in which vines shall grow, each having 10,000 branches, and I mean, this is hyperbole, obviously, but very abundant is the idea here. Um, hyperbole means exaggeration, but not in a negative way. Um, 10,000 twigs, and in each true twig, 10,000 shoots, and in each shoot, 10,000 clusters, and in every one of the clusters, 10,000 grapes, and every grape, when pressed, will give 20,000 metres of wine. That's just a lot. It's very abundant, yeah? And when, you, when one of the saints shall lay hold of the clusters, another shall cry out, I am, better, I am a better cluster. So now we're tra trading the, the, the clusters, we're turning into people. Uh, take me, bless the Lord through me. In like manner, the Lord declared the grain of the wheat would produce 10,000 ears, and that every ear should have 10,000 grains, and every grain would yield 10,000 pounds of clear, pure, fine flour, and that all the fruit-bearing trees and seeds and grass would produce similar proportions, and all the animals feeding only on the produce of the earth should in those days become peaceful and harmonious among each other and be perfect subjection to man. And these things are borne witness to in the writings of who? Theophilus, the hero of John, and the companion of Polycarp in his fourth book, from where there were five books compiled by him. And he says, in, and he says in addition, now these things are credible to believers. Okay. Any thoughts on that? So, yeah, Polycarp, we don't have, we don't know exactly where he stands because we don't have a lot of writings from Polycarp. Um, so, no, I don't, I don't know where he stood. So the third early church father is Barnabas. He wrote a whole letter. It's titled the Epistle of Barnabas. And in chapter 15, he writes this. Moreover, concerning the Sabbath, likewise is written in ten words in which he spake to Moses face to face on Mount Sinai. And ye, ye shall uh, hallow the Sabbath of the Lord and shall make the Sabbath holy. That's what hallow means. With pure hands and with pure heart. And in another place he say, says, if my sons observe the Sabbath, they will bestow my mercy upon them. Of the Sabbath he speaks in the beginning of creation. And God made the works of his hands in six days, and he ended on the seventh day and rested on it, and he hallowed it. Now, so far, nothing's foreign to us, right? This is all very familiar, uh, six days in our creation and having the Sabbath day. Now then he says, give heed, children, what this means. He ended in six days. He means this, that in 6,000 years, the Lord shall bring all things to an end. For the day with him signifies a thousand years. So he's doing a, an analogy here of saying and of the earth is only 6,000 years. And then he'll say the seventh day um, is how many? A thousand years. Okay. So um, 6,000 years, the Lord shall bring all things to an end. For a day with him signifies a thousand years. And this he himself bears... Bear, 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 uh, I'm not very good at Old English. 
bears me witness, saying, Behold, the day of the Lord shall be as a thousand years. Therefore, children, in six days, that is in six thousand years, everything shall come to an end. And he rested on the seventh day. This he means when his son shall come and shall abolish the time of the lawless one, which means the Antichrist, okay, and shall judge the ungodly and shall change the sun, the moon, and the stars. Then he shall truly rest on the seventh day. Yea, furthermore, he says that you shall hallow it or make it holy with pure hands and with a pure heart. If therefore a man is able to hallow the day which God hallowed through, though he be pure in heart, we have gone all utterly astray. But after all then and not till then shall we truly rest and hallow it, and we shall ourselves be able to do so after being justified, receiving the promise when no sin is no more, and all things have been made new by the Lord. We shall be able to hallow it then, because we ourselves shall have been hallowed first. Finally, he said to them, your new moons and your Sabbaths I cannot away with. You see what is his meaning is not your present Sabbaths that are acceptable unto him, but the Sabbath which I have made in which I have set all things at rest. I will make the beginnings of the eighth day, which is the beginnings of another world, so the eternal state. Um, wherever, wherefore also we keep the eighth day for rejoicing, which the eighth day is what day? Sunday. Okay. Uh, in which also Jesus rose from the dead and having been manifested, ascended into heaven. So the seventh day, thousand years. So this is, this is his bonus of his take. Uh, Barnabas, the epistle of Barnabas, is not in our Bibles, uh, and it's definitely deuterocanonical. Some people would say it's heretical, um, depending on who you talk to. Um, the early church fathers debated it. Some took credit to it, and some didn't. Okay, um, But just because it's not can canonical uh, doesn't mean we don't glean something from it. It doesn't mean that, like... Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff written about the Bible now that we read and we find edification from, right? So this is basically his commentary on how he sees. And this concept is not just with Barnabas. This is a popular, um, a popular view of Second Temple literature for the, 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 these periods of time, these ages of history. 6,000 years, and then the 7,000 being the fulfillment of the promises, the seventh day. Any questions about that? Yeah, I probably hit that too quickly. So you have, so what you have is, uh, we haven't got to that in Revelation, but that's the eternal state. So that's chapter 21 of Revelation, uh, where the new heaven, you see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. You have the new heavens, the new earth. That's the eighth day. Does that make sense? In his, in his thing, his layout there, right? Yeah. So part of it, he's calling you to have. So part of what's going on is those uh, uh, ongoing debate on, and it's actually. Today happens. Uh, we have uh, a sect of Christianity called what Seven Day Adventists, right? So the the debate has been forever. So there's a there is a groups of Christians saying we need to 
practices this, okay? And so he's saying, uh, if we really want to practice the Sabbath, we need to honor God as holy, and the only way we're going to really do that is if he makes us holy. And then he's calling the thousand-year reign of Christ like the true Sabbath for the whole earth, right? And and we he's not saying don't keep the Sabbath. He's not don't worship on Saturday or Sunday. I mean, is he doesn't. I don't think he's that vested in that. I mean, meaning that he wants you to do things on both days. Does that make sense? Um, but he's definitely giving credence to the sa- Sabbath, Saturday, and he's giving credence to Sunday, right? He's giving them both very weighty things, right? Sabbath is a thousand-year rest for the earth, a thousand-year reign for Christ, and then Sunday is the eternal state. Any other thoughts or questions? I didn't know you were going to get a church history lesson, did you? Okay, so now the next one, uh, these are all second century guys. So we have the early church father is Justin Martyr, who is a significant apologist, uh, does wrote volumes and volumes and volumes. We got, there's a lot. If you ever really want to go to sleep at night, pick up some of this. It's, it's quite uh, dry, especially if you get it in like a hard translation, uh, like an old English <laughs> translation. Um, um, but he's an apologist. He's very clearly declared uh, in his millennial views, in his dialogue with Trypho, who's a Jew, so he's debating a Jew, um, and he, in his book, uh, Dialogue with Trypho, a Jew, in chapter 80, he says this. Okay, so he's continuing a dialogue from the previous chapter, and Trypho is uh, replying to him, to you, sir, that you are very anxious to be safe in all respects, since you cling to the scriptures. Amen. Yeah, I like that was a compliment. I think Typho was trying to be not complimenting him, though. But, but tell me, do you really admit this, that this place, Jerusalem, shall be rebuilt? And do you expect your people to be gathered together and made joyful with Christ and the patriarchs and the prophets, both the men of our nation and other proselytes who joined them before Christ came? Now, Jerusalem's destroyed, right? Eighty seventy. So this is after the destruction of Jerusalem, okay? Um, you joined them before your Christ came, or, ha- or have you given way and omitted this in order that ha- to have the appearance of worsening us in our controversies? So you're trying to deceive me, basically, he's trying to say. Then Justin answered, I'm not so miserable of a fellow typho as to say that one thing and think another. I admit to you admitted to you formally that I may, I and many others of this opinion and believe that such will take place as you assertedly are aware. But on the other hand, I signified to you that many who belong to, to the pure and pious faith and are true Christians think otherwise. Moreover, so meaning there is people who do not at his time believe in a th- literal thousand year reign of Christ, right? So you have both camps in the time period. Moreover, I pointed out to you that some who are called Christians but are godless and pious heretics teaching, teach doctrines that are in every way blasphemous, a, 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 uh, basically anti theistic, uh, atheistical, there we go, and foolish. 
But that you may know that I do not say this before you alone. I shall drop a statement, so far as I can, of all the arguments which I have passed between us, in which I shall record myself as admitting the very same things which I admit to you. For I chose to follow not men, or men's doctrines, but God and the doctrines delivered by him. For if you have fallen with some who are called Christians, but who do not admit this truth, and venture to blaspheme the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, who say there is no resurrection of the dead, and that their souls will die or taken to heaven, do not imagine that they are Christians, even as one, if he would rightly consider it, would not admit that the Sadducees, or similar sects of Genaste, Nereste, don't ask me who these guys are, Galileans, Hellenists, Pharisees, I know some of them, Baptists, that's not the Baptists we think about, or Jews, uh, do not hear me impatiently when I tell you what I think, but are only called Jews and children of Abraham, worshiping God with the lips, as God himself declared, but the heart was far from him. But I and others are at the right are the right-minded Christians on all points are sure that there will be the resurrection of the dead and a thousand years in Jerusalem, which will then be built, adorned, enlarged, as the prophet Ezekiel and Isaiah and others declare. That's pretty unequivocal. And he's talking to a Jew, right? So he's 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 trying to win this Jew, right, to to Christ. The fifth, any questions on that or comments? Justin Mark, it, reading some of his stuff is is quite interesting. It's just kind of thick, but he wrote co several commentaries on on the books of the New Testament, and then he has these debates. What's that? No, he, he definitely wasn't afraid, yeah. All right. The fifth early church father is Tertullian. He lived approximately 160 to 220 A.D. He was thoroughly trained for politics, the practice of law, and public debate. After he was converted around 185 A.D., he devoted his life to the defense of Christianity against paganism, Judaism and heresy. He opposed infant baptism, promoted the tradition theory of, or of the origin of the human soul, and developed the term Trinity. So we get a lot from Tertullian, okay? To describe the Godhead, in the latter years of his life, he became associated with monotism, a movement with some regard to be a heretical sect, and it does become heretical. The sect is heretical, I would agree. I mean, that's m what I would say. But in a work which he wrote before his association with monetism, Tertullian st stated the following. But we do confess that the kingdom is promised to us upon the earth, although before heaven, only in another state of existence, inasmuch as it will be after the resurrection for a thousand years. Right? Okay? Then he wrote... After its thousand years are over, there will ensue the destruction of the world and the conflagration of all things at the judgment. Okay. So he was not only a millennialist, he was a annihilationist, meaning, you know, the whole earth is going to be wiped out and there would be totally brand new thinking out of nothing, new heaven, new earth. Um, I'm 
I mean, it could go that way depending on you, how you read Peter, okay? If you read Peter as just judgment, then language and symbolic language of judgment, then it doesn't have to be totally annihilation. It can still be uh, renewal. The sixth early church father is Lactanaceous. And he's of the third century. So we jumped ahead a little bit, third century. Um, he's at the beginning. Now we're the middle of the third. No, the beginning of the third century. So he lived approximately from 240 to 320 A.D. He was trained in rhetoric, meaning good at speaking, effective use of language and literature and, and voice. By 290 A.D., he had been appointed by the emperor Diocletian, teach rhetoric at a school in Nicodemia. He became a Christian around 300 A.D. and suffered greatly under the persecution of Emperor Galerius. After Emperor Constantine granted freedom to the church and declared himself a Christian, he appointed Lactatius to be the personal teacher of his son. Though his writings in defense of through through his writings in defense of Christianity, he became known as the Christian Cicero. Okay, so he's at a very toning point, and he is very, very. Um, Millennial or millennial. Jerome de designated Lact Lactanaceus as the most learned man of his time. Uh, Jerome is actually an millennialist. Eusebius and Augustine, which are both amillennialists, uh, honored him. Lactatius wrote, As God labored six days in building such great works, so his religion and truth must labor during these 6,000 years while malice prevails. Indominus. Who does that sound like? Barnabas, right? The epistle of Barnabas. And again, since he rested on the seventh day from his completed labors and blessed day, so it is necessary that at the end of the 6,000 years all evil be abolished from the earth and that justice reign for a thousand years and that there be tranquility and rest from the labors which the world is now enduring for so long. Lactatius understood that the end of his present age will be characterized by a time of unprecedented tribulation. At the end of this age, it is drawing near, therefore it is necessary that the state of the human affairs be changed and fall to a worse one. Evil growing stronger so that these present times of ours in which iniquity and malice have advanced to a very high peak can be judged, however happy and almost golden in comparison with the remedial evil he followed this statement with amazing description of the future tribulation period. Although he lived in Rome, while in Rome was a great world power, Lactatius, Lac yeah, I don't know, I'm not Chinese, right? But was convinced from the prophetic scriptures that Rome would be destroyed and then the rule of the world would shift from the rest to the east. This would be the cause of the destruction and confusion that Rome, that the Roman name by which the world is now ruled the mind shudders to say it but i will say it because it's going to be will be taken from the earth and will be returned to asia and again the orient will dominate the rest the west dominate and the west will serve lactanaceous believed that at his second coming christ will war uh, against and judge antichrist and his godless forces 
then the dead will rise so that they may reign with God for a thousand years after being reign, being again restored to life. He said of Jesus, when he shall have destroyed injustice and made the great judgment, restored life, those who were just from the beginning, he will stay among men for a thousand years and will rule with them just with just dominion. Any questions so far? So, Lantatius described the conditions of the future kingdom. Then those who will be living in bodies will not die, but will generate an infinite multitude during those same thousand years. Those who will be raised from the dead will be in charge of the living as judges. At this time, also the prince of demons, who is the contriver of all evils, will be bound in chains. That sounds like what we read in Revelation, right? And he will be in the custody of a thousand years of the heavenly power, whereby justice will reign on earth, lest any evil be exhorted against the people of God. The holy city will be set up at in the center of the earth, which the founder himself may abide with just, with the just who are its rulers. And then, like this claim, the earth will be transformed. The sun will be more effective. Fertility will be great. Crops will be abundant, and animals will be tame. In the light of these changes, he said, men will enjoy, therefore, the most tranquil and most abundant life, and they will reign together with God. Kings of nations will come from the ends of the earth with gifts and presents to adore and honor the great king, whose name will be famous and vulnerable to all people, which will be under heaven and to the kings who will rule on the earth. And then he asserted that at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be set loose. So it's just really tracking right with what we just read in, in Revelation. Um, and lead a final revolt. God will crush the revolt and judge Satan forever. The unjust will be resurrected to everlasting sufferings. Heaven and earth will change drastically. From this, we conclude that there is a majority view of second century early church fathers of a literal thousand year reign of Christ. The, the, there's the majority of them. They're all ones that don't, but most of them are later. Augustine is later. Does that make sense? Jerome is later. These, the, the, most of it starts in the 300s AD, the R millennial. It doesn't start till later. And part of it is their hermeneutical laws or their own hermeneutical methods changed. They went more to an allegorical or more symbolic hermeneutic. So then R millennialism was more conducive. Another big change that I think affected it was Constantine came into power, and you had the melding of, you know, Christianity with uh, a political power, um, and I think that had an effect uh, on how they they interpreted it. Uh, I w they changed the way they studied the Bible, which then changed the way they viewed it. They didn't let it, it didn't lessen the um, the the authority of Scripture. They just changed. They I wouldn't say they changed it. They emphasized one over the other, and that's what happens. So, uh, when when you have systematic theology, which is what a lot of this walking out is, um, you have like you have methods or you have systems in which you use to study. Uh, that's what hermeneutics means. It's study of the Bible, and you have a reformed tradition, which is usually what generates amill and postmillennialism, okay? And, and it's their views that generate that. They give priority uh, 
to more typological or symbolic interpretation of prophecy, okay? And then you have dispensational. If I was the Pullen, right, you have Reformed and then you have dispensational. They give more priority to literal interpretation of prophecy. I would say the truth is in the middle, okay? I'm not, I, I don't think either camp ha has capitalized on the truth. Does that make sense? The truth is in the middle because I can point to you several scripture passages that are literal interpretation of prophecy. To ride into the Jerusalem on a donkey, right? Um, Daniel 9 uh, prophesies that to the day, okay? Um, so that's literal, right? But uh, Matthew in chapter 3 uh, says uh, that when Jesus went to Egypt, it was to fulfill the prophecy that out of Egypt I will call my son. Well, you go back and you read that passage, definitely a, 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 a symbolic interpretation of that prophecy. The passage very clearly makes it clear that that son, that, that, that uh, I think it's Hosea, yeah, Hosea was talking about, he, in his mind and in the context is Israel, okay? Um, and but the New Testament writer and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit uh, makes that uh, a type Israel a type Jesus a type of Israel. Okay. Now the question is, then I just take that and <laughs> stamp it everywhere. Does that make sense? Um, if I do that, then I then I think I get myself in trouble, right? But is it is it appropriate sometimes? Yeah, it is. Does that make sense? So that's why that's why you get these. That's part of what makes Revelation so confusing, because you got to kind of weigh: okay, is this literal, right, or is this a type, or is this uh, an image to show something literal? Does that make sense? And so th th those are hard things to weigh. Um, and so. I think the closer we are to John and the writing of Revelation, the more millennial we are, the farther away we get, uh, the more our mill we become in, in the church. The Catholic church is our mill or postmill. Any questions so far? And most like Presbyterians are our mill, right? Uh, Reformed Church. Lutherans typically are male. I'm not picking on them. I, I don't have anything against them. So. Well, so in his time, which is, I mean, I mean, he's definitely an outlier in the third century. I mean, he, I mean, so just think about it. Constantine has commissioned him to teach his son Christianity. Constantine is like, it'd be like Trump commissioning me to teach Trump Jr. about God, right? And then he's teaching Trump Jr., yeah, the United States is just going to be toast, dude. <laughs> and Babylon, the east, that's, that's why it's referring, Babylon is, is going to rise and it's going to take everything out. And we'll talk a little bit about, we're going to talk about Babylon on Sunday um, and, and the three different ways 
effects of interpretation in scriptural and the three different meanings that it carries and whether there will be a Babylon entity that rearises as a nation, right? Um, we'll, we'll discuss that a little bit on Sunday. Um, and, and the, I mean, basically those three things that scripture does when it talks about Babylon, okay? I'm just going to tell you now and then you can be clued in when I talk about it on Sunday. First way is Old Testament Babylon, starting at the Tower of Babel, okay? That's, that's Babylon, modern-day area Iraq, okay? okay? Then the second uh, way that it talks about uh, Babylon is um, the, uh, the system of the world refers to Rome as Babylon. So it has it as like a world system. Like everything that entails the evil of this world is Babylon. Okay? So that's the second way scripture talks about Babylon. And then the third way that scripture talks, and this is really where some of the debate is, right? Is is like a is Babylon reborn. Right? And is it actual physical Babylon reborn, or is it this system of the world that, that has embodied? Does that make sense? Reformed like to say it's the system of the world that embodies Babylon. Okay, that's more of a symbolic because they're going to lean into that, right? A dispensationalist likes to say, "Oh yeah, I mean, look, you know, Saddam Hussein did a lot of stuff to rebuild Babylon, and you know, and you know, and they might even say, you know, that's the center of." You know, Muslims, and there's a whole bunch of Muslims, and the Muslims are all about jihad. You, you see what I'm And I'm not mocking that, uh, but I think that's that part is more speculation because they're trying to, to connect dots that may get connected, but there's no. Does that make sense? There's no scriptural basis for that. I mean, so scripture's canon is closed by the time Muslims show up on the scene. Right, so six hundred A.D. is when mu when Muslim the 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 religion of Muslim really gives birth and take and, and captures the the Middle East. It's it's a newer Christian, uh, it's a newer uh, Abrahamic heresy. Yeah, so they say they, they that's what they do. So they take Ishmael. They say they came from Ishmael. In fact, but I would say there's very literal, there's very little proof that they actually came from Ishmael. Like there's little. That's like a <laughs> that's a, a a fallacy that they've done really good at educating even the Christian circles that they came from Ishmael. They, there's little proof that they came from Ishmael. I'll have to look. I can. I mean, it's boring. But there's a a journal article. They say they came from Ishmael. Right. Yeah. And then the Book of Muhammad is the correct book, right? But that book didn't get written until 600 A.D. Right. So it's a 
It's a heresy from the Judeo-Christian faith. So it's kind of like, I mean, if I was to make it a modern-day one, it would be like Mormons or, or like uh, Jehovah Witness. But it just happened 600, like, well, 1,500 years ago, right? Because it's 600 A.D. is when they, that, that sect arose. And then they're militant, right? So uh, they conquer by the sword. I mean, not all Muslims are militant. I'm not trying to say that. But at the core of their faith, their, their writings are militant. Any other questions or thoughts? Okay. Um, so what are we going to take away from this? Because we always need some good application. If I'm a good teacher, I just dump a dump load of information on you. So let me glean a couple things. First, uh, there's been disagreement on millennialism from early on, right? Right? From the very first century. And so my opinion, let's not divide over it, right? Let's, if we don't agree, let's agree to disagree and enjoy talking about it, right? This isn't a, uh, a gospel issue, right? Okay? Now, it's a fleshing out of the gospel issue, but it's not a gospel issue, okay? So let's stay, let's stay united. Second, this view was not invented by Darby and Schofield. Now, Darby and Schofield were the ones who popularized this view in our day. Okay, Schofield Reference Bible, you guys heard of that? Yeah, that's a dispensational millennial Bible. Darby was a little bit before Schofield, but didn't have a big as a platform. So many times if you're talking to a Reformed person and they're very argumentative, they'll say, well, it just got invented by Darby and Schofield. Yeah, that's not true. I mean, I think we just proved pretty strongly, right, by looking through the early church fathers, and who really wants to dig through the early church fathers, right? That's a laborious job. I spent eight hours today going through, well, almost eight hours, going through the early church fathers, right? Um, now I was doing some searches, and thank God I had uh, technology to help me, right, and some articles, but it still took a long time, right? So you can make claims, and if people aren't familiar with those claims, right? Then they'll be, oh, yeah, you're right. Maybe it was. It was way out of, like, it was out of favor f since about 300 A.D. It was a minority view after 300 A.D. Right? And then it resurfaced mainly to a majority view. Now it's a majority view, okay, with Darby and Schofield. Okay? Any questions about that? Jenkins really popularized it, but <laughs> Jerry Jenkins, yeah, with his Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye, and, and then there's the other one, like for some of the older folk, um, the, uh, uh, see, I just forgot his name, um, Hal Lindsey, yeah, and he, he definitely was very pro-dispensational, uh, literal interpretation little too sensational, like overdid it, did like some stuff that I don't think was wise. And I think if I was to critique dispensational and literal is they we 
they try to read the paper and then say this is this is being fulfilled today right well yeah maybe maybe not doesn't you know a lot of times prophecy you don't see until you're on the other side of it right yeah so i would say that's just sensationalism and and they're just hyping it um and i would just i would listen to it but i would just have a very heavy filter yeah these people are exegesis yeah there is time, I mean, I think there is, we all on the cusp of things have, I mean, Israel becoming a nation is, is preparatory. It, it definitely sets a scene for s some of these prophecies to be coming. I don't think Israel, that is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. Some would say it is. Some would point to the wars and the, and the supernatural. And there's definitely, there's no doubt in my mind about supernatural intervention by God. For them to stay there, and in the six-day war, you read those accounts. I mean, it's pretty. Actually, right now there is a documentary on that on Prime. That'd be an interesting uh, watch. Um, oh shoot, I can't remember. Let me look it up real quick. I think it's on my watch list. So. Yeah, okay, let me talk about, let me, ad uh, let me address that. Um, um, I'm not seeing it. I'll look it up on my computer at home, and I'll send it out. Um, so, so ba basically... That's part of what we inherited from our Protestant revolution. So part of what was going on is obviously Catholics uh, have the idea, concept of purgatory. They have the concept of, um, um, keep paying money, what is that? Indul indul indulgences, those all come, all a misinterpretation of Second Temple Temple literature. So when we, as when you know Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses, and that movement caught wind, and one of the emphases was sola scriptura, right? Scripture alone, and um, and and these early church fathers did not disregard the 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 pseudepigrapha, the deuterocanonical books. They said they are profitable uh, but not authoritative that's what they said now but over time in uh, in Protestantism because they're not they they're not authoritative then we don't spend a lot of time on them and then we and because things like ideas of purgatory and indulgence come out of that then we distance ourselves even further from them so we have a culture, a Protestant culture, that is more negative towards those because of the emphasis. And I, 
I don't know if it's because, but because we emphasize scripture and the canon of scripture heavily. Does that make sense? Right. And, and they're the beneficial, but they're not authoritative. Some of it's not even accurate. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Th- well, they didn't throw them out. Well, I guess in the technically they throw them out. They don't put them in the Bible. Um, and I would say that the majority of Protestants haven't read them. Right. And I, I mean, I didn't. Well, I grew up reading some of them just because I was curious. But yeah. So, I don't have the reference in Voris, but I do know for Mac the for Purgatory, it's in Maccabees. Um, and I, I can look that up for you and send you the reference. But basically, you know how Jews make sacrifices. Um, well, that's um, so he's making uh, in Maccabees. He's doesn't want to get his guys wiped out again, um, so he makes a sacrifice. And the Jews read it as an interpretation that he's making a sacrifice for the dead. But really, he's making a sacrifice so that everybody there is good before they go into war again. But they, they just misread that. In Mac, I think it's second. Oh, it might be. I think it's second Maccabees. I'll look it up. I'll, yeah. I don't have. <laughs> I'm not good at references. So. Actually, we got a couple uh, Reformed Catholics here. He was raised Catholic, right, Rick? Yeah. And so you were raised Catholic, and then Alicia, weren't you raised Catholic? No, not really. Okay. Episcopal. It's kind of. It's not the same thing. It's Protestant, but it's close to Catholic. So. Okay. Now that you guys laid your biographies out there, so all right, any other questions? All right, last one. This is a good one. Christ is coming back, right? Amen? I'm so excited. And it'll be great, however it happens, <laughs> right? Let's, you know, whether it's at the end of the millennial kingdom, whether it's like consummate, whatever. He's coming back. That's a, no, that's a non-compromiser, right? You're going to tell me he's not coming back, I'm going to say, uh, heretic, <laughs> right? And so... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so that would happen. So hold on to that future hope and be ready because he is coming, right? Amen. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's hard, uh, and to, you know, you know, the really the gift of salvation is God's gift, right? So unless the Holy Spirit convicts and 
and opens the yeah opens the eyes gives them the faith to believe yeah it's tough yeah or just <laughs> i think all big i think people's bigness reasonable is i want to be in control of my own decisions and my own self and i don't want somebody telling me what to do you know We actually made it through. Of course, I only have five minutes to pray, but we made it through. Hey, what are you doing falling off? He's like, I'm anxious. We've been talking for forever. You want to hold him? Anybody? Anybody want to hold him? Because he's getting a little antsy, so... Some people have two hands up. All right. Any prayer requests or praises?